How many of you know how to ride a bike? There you go. Good, good. And how many of you, when you started riding a bike, had the training wheels on it? Raise your hand, training wheels. Can you remember the time that you were taught to ride without training wheels? And it could have been a grandparent, could have been a neighbor, an older sibling, could have been a parent for me. It was a parent, and, uh, and it was fun. It was my dad, and, and dad, dad is always, you know, my mom will kill me for saying this. Dad is always, uh, was way more patient in teaching us things like that. You know, I try, you know, fast forward to learning how to drive, much rather learn how to drive with my father than my mom, because my mom had the imaginary brake that just didn't stop the car, but it caused anxiety in everybody, where my dad was like, so you ran a red light, you, know, you understand that, right? <laughs> you know? So my dad was the one that teached me how to ride a bike and without training wheels, and, and, and if you remember, I mean, it's such a great image, and it'll be a great image for us today, because today we learn... In the book of Acts, at chapter 3, as we are going through the book of Acts, the training wheels come off a little bit for our church. And so when, you, when you're learning how to ride that bike, you have your, your parent typically behind you holding on to the seat, right? And they kind of run along, uh, run along with you, and, and, and you're, you're, you're feeling out the mechanics now of this, of this two-wheeler instead of something that had the training wheels to help you not fall. But then eventually, what has to happen? The parent has to kind of let go, right? Now, your parent doesn't go away, at least mine didn't. You know, he kind of let me go and let me ride, and, but he was still behind me, like he was still jogging along, and he was still shouting things and, and, and giving instructions so that I wouldn't, or I wouldn't fall over. But I had to feel it. I have to feel the weight distribution. I have to feel what it's like to ride it. I have to feel what it's like to fall, to fail, get back on it again. And yet, you know, he's running right alongside me until I'm, I'm ready to go. The training wheels come off today. Where are we at in Acts? Well, we are going through a journey of Acts, and so far, we spent a great deal of time looking at Peter's first message to, to the world, basically, to his world, to those Jewish brothers and sisters. And in that first message, 3,000 people get added to the number of the gathering of, of people who are, who are coming to profess a faith in the Lord. And what Peter laid down is he laid down, this is the gospel. This is who Jesus is. This is who he isn't. And that you have now an opportunity to respond to that, to repent, to, to realize your old way of thinking was wrong and to change your mind and your heart and confess him as Lord. And then when you do that, then you get baptized. And after you get baptized, the whole Holy Spirit, the full power of the Holy Spirit will come upon you and, 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 and you're ready to rock and roll. That was his message, and, and people responded. And then last week, we looked at, okay, so now we've got this gathering of folks. What did they do? What did they value? How did they organize themselves? And we saw that this was a gathering of people that were fully devoted to the teachings of the apostles and to the breaking of bread, to the fellowship, and to the prayers. And that fully devoted meaning that they're immovable. They're steadfast holding on to these things, and that they were filled with the awe of the signs and wonders that the apostles were doing. And I said that, that, that all peace, A-W-E, not A-L-L, that all peace is the thing that really fueled, I think, this whole thing. That, that, that is that, 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 that key part in their soul that allowed them to posture themselves with devotion was that they were fully expecting to God to do just amazing things and to surprise them and to catch them off guard and for them to be like, this is, this is God, this is the Lord, and, and more and more people coming in. 
And so now as we turn to Acts chapter 3, it's the church without training wheels in action. And we see the apostles live out in real time, two of them, uh, practicing what they, they preached. And, it, it's, and it's, um, I think it's done with uh, impressive skill on the author Luke, Luke who wrote Acts. I think he, he purposefully puts this story first as an example of what this um, gathering of people, this fellowship, are going to be about. And, in, and we see in so doing, what we'll see today is a parallel between the journey of the church here at its first days, its first moments, to Jesus's early ministry. There is a direct parallel between the two. Both of these accounts, what Jesus starts off to do and what the church starts off to do, begin in the same manner, in the same way. And I think it's, you know, I think it's really interesting. Last night I was like, this is interesting. And I, and I was struggling with, you know, better ways to explain it. But what I, what I began to see is if the church and Christ are parallel to each other in terms of their ministry and what they are doing, we can begin to understand things that, that, that we can possibly expect there to be crowds of people who are captivated by what we're teaching. Jesus attracted crowds and, and he taught them and, and we could do the same as the church. But we could also expect at the same time that when you do that, you begin to start a ruckus. You begin to start, you know, messing in people's cornflakes there and then things start kind of happening and Jesus began to get persecuted. Well, we know the church gets persecuted too. We understand that, that has happened, and it continues to happen. But we also know that when Jesus was fully persecuted, died on the cross for our sins, it glorified God and it glorified his name, and it launches the church. The 12 apostles get it, and they receive the Holy Spirit, and we start this movement on. And the same with the church, when it's persecuted, more and more people will begin to be added. There are churches, underground churches today in the world that are seeing a great reformation because they are under such duress and yet people are coming and hearing the gospel. Why? It's because folks are showing how devoted they are to the teaching. That, that's all that they can hold on to. It's real in their life. And others want to see and be a part of it, even though persecution is happening. And so we run these great parallels between what Christ is doing and what the church is doing. We see it real, we see it rooted, and fully devoted in the lives of the people. Because this is not a country club that we're running. This is a church. This is a lifestyle. This is a rhythm change. You may hear me say that often, that this should change our rhythms. And I use the marching band metaphor and, and how we lock step and follow with the drum major and march and step with them. Being a part of Christ's family, being a Christ follower, and then being together in fellowship with one another needs to change how we walk and how we have a rhythm in life. Because this is his church. And today we will see this is what it looks like to love and serve the God we're devoted to. This is what it looks like to love and serve the God we are devoted to. So y'all ready? Let's do this. Now this is a simple passage. Very, very simple passage. At, 
At the very least, what I could have done was come up here, had you open up to Acts chapter 3, which you're going to do in just a second, read it to you and say, so this was, this is it. Here you go. But let's, let's dig in here and see some truths that we can take. I see three lessons for us as a church for us to see what the church looks like when we love and serve the devoted Lord that we have. So let's look at Acts chapter 3, 1 through 10. If you go to your pew Bibles, it's in page 1082 and 1083. If you've got the journals, you can open up to Acts chapter 3. It's there in the beginning there, a couple pages back. And let's read together now what the church is doing without its training wheels. Hear now the word of the Lord, Acts chapter 3. Let's go. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean up as in a mountain. It could in terms of where the location is. It's a common phrase meaning that they're going up to worship. And, and what is also significant here about that is that, that the early church is continuing the worship practices of their Jewish faith. So they didn't jettison that just yet. That has not necessarily been gone. I don't, know if it, I don't know if it ever really gets jettisoned. I think even for us as Christians today, it's the, the Old Testament is still foundational in what we are springboarding the New Testament off of, right? And so they have not left that yet. They're going up to do their prayer time. It's around three o'clock in the afternoon, but they call it the, uh, the ninth hour. Second verse, and a man Lame from birth, so born, it's actually in the Greek, it's uh, lame from his mother's womb, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms for those entering the temple. And that is a common practice. Uh, the beggar is actually um, being strategically placed at the temple so that worshipers coming in could have a last-minute chance to give some money to the poor to earn favor for God before going into temple. So the beggars knew that, and they're like, this is the place to be, to sit, okay? And so that is what he's expecting. He's expecting some, some cheap generosity, some coinage to come his way, and that he's been carried to that temple every day by his friends. So understand this, this guy's life. It's not much of, a, a, of an existence, how nice it is for his friends to do that, but this is how he has to survive off the, the generosity of, of others. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him. Underline that if you've got your journals. Directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on, and the beggar fixed his attention on Peter and John, expecting to receive something from them, a coin of sorts. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now, what he is giving him is different than if you go to a restaurant and give your server a nice little track as a tip. As a tip. This is more than that piece of paper that says Jesus loves you. What they are doing here, he says, what I have to give you is worth more than all the gold and silver in the world. And what I'm going to give you is in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, underline that's important, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up and immediately his feet 
and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with him, walking and leaping and praising God. So he's very, very happy. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. They recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled again with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, three important lessons in this little interaction. As I said in the beginning, what we see here when the training wheels come off is that the church and, and Jesus, their ministries begin to kind of parallel each other. Every commentary that I read, which brings me to my first lesson, that there is significance in healings. There is significance in healings. Every commentary that I read on this passage mentions that that it's, that it's interesting that the church's first action that Luke picks is a healing of somebody. And that is the same thing that all synoptic gospels put down for Jesus when he starts his earthly ministry, that there are healings. If you go to the gospel of Matthew, Matthew 4, 23, I've put it up there for you. It says this, and he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And then Matthew goes immediately then into chapter 5. If anyone knows what starts chapter 5 in Matthew, shout it out. The Beatitudes, very good. And the Beatitudes, the first 11 verses, are all about blessing people who are poor, blessing people who are poor in spirit, blessing the people who mourn, who meek, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessing those who are down and out. It shows a mirror into what Jesus is valuing and what he is getting ready, what he is doing, why he is here. Then Mark and Luke, they don't have the Beatitudes necessarily, but what they do have, I think Luke has the Beatitudes roughly, but Mark and Luke, when they include the healing uh, their healings, it's the healing of the unclean man, a man who has a, uh, a demon in him and, and, and comes and, and both Mark and Luke record that this demon-possessed man looks at Jesus and says, I know who you are. What have you come to do, Jesus of Nazareth? Are you come to destroy me? And Jesus casts out those demons from him, casts out the demons from him and, and shakes and convulses and the whole thing. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke all start with some sort of healing that Jesus is doing. Here in Acts, we have Peter and John on their way to the temple as they are going, and they see this person here who is lame from birth, who cannot walk, who cannot be, be self-sufficient, has to rely on others, and they seize that moment to, to heal him. Now, why is this significant? And to understand the significance, you have to go to what is the end game purpose of Jesus to understand what's the end game purpose of the church. Jesus' end game is listed here in Matthew. I have come to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. In Luke chapter 4, verses 18 through 19, Luke says it this way. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Jesus is reading a scroll in the temple of his hometown, Nazareth. He actually goes into the church, into the temple, asks for a scroll while they're worshiping, and then at some point stands up and reads it. Could you imagine that someone would come in here, come up to me and say, Scooch, 
excuse, and open up the scriptures and then begin to say these words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and then he sat down. Could you imagine? <laughs> Everyone in this room, I laughed at that last I thought that was hysterical. Everyone in this room, if someone were to come up, scooch me off to the side, say that and sit down, what would we do? We'd think that person was nuts. And in a sense, they kind of do too. They actually try to put Jesus' feet to the fire and say, we hear all the things that you're doing, do it here now to us. And Jesus quotes from the Old Testament, Elijah and Elijah, two different prophets that went into around their hometown but didn't do anything for them. And then they got all, they got all upset and they got ready to seize him and, and, and throw him over a, a cliff, I think is what it says. But that's not important. That's another message. Uh, today, what is there is what Jesus uh, said in the scroll. What did I come to do? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, proclaim liberty to the captives, recover sight to the blind, and liberty for those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He's come to give glimpses and evidence of the kingdom. The truths of the kingdom that await. These healings, these, these things that are happening are a foretaste of the glory divine. They are the foretaste of what's to come. And as he does those things all through scripture, when he does all these healings, what happens? Crowds of people begin to come because they're captivated by what's happening. And then at some point, he begins to turn them from, don't be so amazed at these miracles, be amazed at the person who's doing them. Because if you follow me and have faith in me, you can come to my Father's house, the kingdom that awaits, where there is perfect healing, where there is no illnesses, where there are no chains that will hold you, where there are nothing that's going to oppress you, where there's nothing that's going to afflict you. You're just getting a foretaste of that as the kingdom is drawing near, but you can have it all in full if you follow me and have faith in me. Well, the church is now getting ready to do the same thing, are they not? They have this healing here, and everyone is being captivated by the signs and the wonders of the apostles. And it's so that we can say that the church now has been charged and empowered by the Holy Spirit to send and bring glimpses of the kingdom that awaits the people. So that when they see that, they are captivated by that and want to come and know more. Now, we may not heal with the immediacy that the John and Peter healed. You know, it says there in Acts 3 that he was immediately healed and he rose and walked. We may not be doing that. But what we can be doing is offer healing and glimpses of the kingdom and how we are compassionate with each other, how we pray for the world, how we help the poor, feed the hungry, how we take part in mission, how we make it important that the world sees that they can be sustained by the very fellowship that we are in Christ's name. Isn't that an amazing parallel? So lesson one is that healings are significant. 
Sometimes we want to write them off as like, well, they don't happen anymore. Depending on what camp you're in about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, I don't really care at the moment. But I mean, the, the, but these healings are important. And whether or not that the healings that John and Peter just did that was so immediate are happening present day, I know what is happening present day is the opportunity to, to love on the poor, to feed the hungry, to help the meek, to have beatitude eyes for this world. Lesson number one, there is significance in healing. There is significance in healing. Now look here, let's, let's go a little bit closer here. Look at how Peter directs his attention to the beggar. I'm going to go into my second lesson, which is don't overlook people. So the first lesson is there's importance in healings. The second lesson is don't overlook people. So what does it say here? It says here in Acts chapter 3, listen everyone, I'm going to go totally off script too, so we don't know where we're going to go, but I just feel the spirit on this one. Look at chapter 3. It says that Peter directed his gaze at him. He sees him for who he is. That word in the Greek, to direct your gaze, it's one word. It almost means to like to truly see to the soul of the person. He truly sees this beggar. And that same word is used when Peter is around the charcoal fire while Jesus is being tried and people are asking him, weren't you with him? And the Gospel of Luke, who likes this word, says that this woman looked directly at Peter and saw him for who he truly is. Now Peter, who is now the apostle full of the Holy Spirit, is able to see this beggar for who he truly is. He turns his gaze upon him. This guy has been at this gate daily. It is quite possible that Peter and John have ran into him before and did not pay attention. But today, for some reason, by God's nudging, their eyes fall upon this beggar. They hear his need and they look directly to his soul. And they lift his eyes up and they say, look, look at us. Look at us. And then they say, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. They, they, they didn't... I love the fact that they're on their way to worship because if you're like me, when you're on the way to, to worship, and worship is also a dual thing for me because it's also my occupation, but as I'm on my way here, I don't know if I'm having eyes for everything that's going on around me to look for people who are in need, to look for people who need help. Yesterday, we had a funeral for Warren Powell and his son told a story about how they were on the road in the snow. And they were coming up, and they realized that it was treacherous. They stopped their car. They got out of it. Warren said, let's get out. Let's help people make the turn. Can you believe that? To have the eyes and the heart to be like, we're going to help these people. Because that's the right thing to do. That's what God would have us do. I drive by folks on the side who are asking for help so many times. This was convicting to me to understand that there are people who need help. And we as a church ought not to get so busy doing church that we overlook folks that are at our door asking for help. 
he fixed his gaze upon him, and he saw him for what he truly is. The lesson for the church without training wheels, if we want to know what the church looks like that loves and serves the devoted Lord, it is one that doesn't overlook the needs of people. And then lastly, to know what the church looks like that loves and serves the devoted Lord is to understand where our power comes from. This should go without preaching. But it's here, and I got to call it out. Peter says, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. In Jewish culture, names are important. And the name is not just any other name. It's the name has the person's very character and essence in it. And so when Peter says in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, he is not just saying, oh, you know, hey, Jesus, help me out. He is saying it's through Jesus Christ's power that this healing is going to happen. It is through this power coming through me as a conduit that this healing is going to happen. And, and why that is significant is that further on down this passage, we get into Peter's second message to the people, which will be next week, so I won't go into it too much. But here again, a healing has happened, something supernatural. It's caused a ruckus, and people have gathered around in all and want to see more. And the leaders of the temple are beginning to think this whole little Christ movement is getting to be too much. And we need to squash that down. So as the people gather around, Peter's like, you don't, don't be in all of this and thinking that I did this. I am not special. He says, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made this man walk? At verse 16 he says, and his name by faith in his name has made this man strong, whom you see and you know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Because once again, we have to have signs and wonders being done through the apostles. Signs and wonders being done through Jesus the Christ. So that the world will know the glory of the Father and the glory of the Son. Peter, at his first message, said, This Jesus, whom God proved to you through the many signs of wonders, to prove who Jesus Christ is. Then we have the group that is gathering together, many signs and wonders being done through the apostles to approve the legitimacy of the church. And now here Peter and John are healing and once again saying, It is not us that are doing this. It is in the name of Jesus, the Christ of Nazareth where this power has come through. And so the lessons for us as a church with the training wheels now coming off so that we can actually begin to ride as a church and may experience some failures and may experience some persecution and bumps along the way, but the things to remember to call back so we can feel our weight and feel our distribution is to understand these things, that, 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 that healings are very, very significant. And when we do those things, when we pray and when we serve the poor and when we help people in their afflictions, we, we, we bring them to an awareness of the kingdom that awaits them. 
and that we don't overlook people in their needs. We see them at the doors. We give them what they need to help them out along their way. And don't look at it as a handout, but look at it as a way to bless them in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, who empowers us to do all of these things. Because unlike my father, who eventually lets go and doesn't run alongside me anymore while I ride my bike, the Holy Spirit, who continues to shout instructions and continues to give us power, rides right alongside us as we get on this bike and bring the good news to people. This is the church with the training wheels off. If you want to know what the church looks like that loves and serves the devoted Lord, look no further to how they acted here with this lame beggar who couldn't walk and is now leaping and jumping for joy. Let's pray. Gracious Lord Jesus, I thank you for your many blessings, and I thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit that we don't even begin to comprehend. We can't even begin to fathom how you are working in our own lives as individuals, making us more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus, but how you also work within the church, within Bethel Presbyterian, and with the church universal, all of us, hand in hand, trying our best to, to shine a light and point it to you. So Lord, by your Holy Spirit, empower us to get on the bike and ride, knowing that you're with us each step of the way to give us the heart to want to help people, to give us the eyes to see them and not overlook them, and the humility to rest in the power of Jesus the Christ of Nazareth. For this is what the church looks like. Amen.